Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and I've got a special guest that I think you're going to love hearing from, if you haven't read his book already, Mr. Rick Howard. Rick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, glad to have it. Yeah, for those who are listening to the first time, make sure you subscribe to uh, CISO Tradecraft either on LinkedIn. You'll get a lot more than just podcasts. If you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe. And if you're following us on your favorite podcast channel, please go ahead and follow us or subscribe there as well so you can get useful information for your career. Now, today, as I mentioned, Rick is here, uh, Chief Security Officer, Chief Analyst, Senior Fellow at CyberWire, very impressive uh, resume, and also the author of this fine book, <laughs> Security First Principles, which I actually, as I mentioned, I already actually bought that a few months ago, and it was my next book to read. Uh, and so this is very, very timely. Right? Well, you, uh, glad you certainly have a next career as a hand model, okay, if you want to do that <laughs> later. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Behind door number one, we have this book, all right? And uh, although Carol Merrill, I don't know if anybody remembers her. I do remember her, but can, let me just say before you get started here is, you know, I'm a podcaster also, and there are literally thousands of cybersecurity podcasts and I listen to a bunch of them, but yours is on the top of the queue. When you release a new episode, it's the first one I listen to. So thank you for doing that, and congratulations on a great show. Well, thank you very much, and it's a privilege to have you here as well. And as we get into the show, I'm going to share a little bit of things that you may or may not have realized that we have deeply in common, and you might go, uh -huh. if, you hadn't, if you hadn't heard that part of it. <laughs> so anyway, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I mean, you got a very... Uh, a distinguished career, and you've done a lot of cool things, and it's really helpful for people to understand, like, just who am I going to be listening to for the last next few minutes? Sure. Well, I got my start in cybersecurity in the military. I'm an old Army guy. Uh, I spent 30 years in the Army. My last assignment was I ran the, I was the commander of the Army's computer emergency response team, and I got to coordinate offensive and defensive operations for the Army back in the day when we didn't really we didn't even know how to spell the internet back then, right? So it was a it was an interesting time. And when I retired from the service, I went strictly to a pure play cybersecurity company. You know, most people like me and you, when we would go out uh, of the service, we'd go work for a Beltway Bandit. That's what most of us do. Uh, I did not do that, and because of that, I got uh, I had to be force fed what is important to business. Okay, and uh, that was a big deal for me. I had to learn that pretty quickly. So I worked for Counterpain, which was Bruce Schneier's company. Oh, right, yeah. He I had an offer from Bruce in 1999 <laughs> to go and run his for services because that was the year I got my MBA. Uh huh. And the quick side story here. So not to interrupt your your really good background. So Bruce and and I had known each other since the 90s. I remember when he came out with Secrets and Lies. I had done a pre-publication review, helped write a chapter in there, and so I've got a little. Yeah, a little thank you there in the front. Although it doesn't have the G in G Mark. It's like, come on. It's like <laughs> Captain Jack Sparrow. Like, but uh, we were we were talking at DEF CON, I think it was back in the day when we were over the Alexis Park and Cryptonomicon had just Oh, my favorite. It's my favorite book. Yeah. Easy book. Yeah. Yeah. And Bruce had written a cryptographic approach where you could take a deck of cards mm -hmm. and put them in a certain order so you could actually encode a message. And in the back there was an appendix and things like that. And uh, I was there with my wife and Bruce was there with his wife and and things like that. And we're just talking to each other. And I said, Hey, Bruce, I see that you got nice mention of Cryptonomicon. I mean, it's a great thing. Yeah. And he's, yeah, yeah. And I said, You got the appendix in the bag, and it really explains how it works. I said, The tenth term is wrong. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, You are the only person to have ever 
told me that. Wow. You're right. Wow. You're right. And subsequently to that, I ended up uh, interviewing with him and uh, going out there and, and getting a, a solid job offer with Counterpain. And my wife didn't really want to go out there in that part of California because at the time, and of course, probably still true today, real estate prices were a little bit out of reach. Indeed. Because we were coming from Maryland. And we would have probably had to be down um, uh, you know, miles away in some garlic town uh, <laughs> where you'd have to drive through all the fields of garlic and, and the like. And so we ended up not taking that position. But anyway, back to Bruce and, and Counterpain and your career there. So you did take a job with him. So that's well, it's funny you mentioned Secrets and Lies because uh, I was still the commander of the ACER when that book came out and it blew us all away, right? And I, you know, reading it and then I was reading the back cover and said, hey, these guys have a headquarters just down the street from where I live. I should call them. And that's how I got my job. Clearly the second choice after you passed uh, on the job. <laughs> well, we had a bunch of people that we were kind of in the I Turned Down Bruce Club. <laughs> Becky Bass was a member of that late Becky Bass. Yeah. Uh, Mark Cadrick eventually ended up taking that yeah. job. Uh, uh, Star Wars. And I remember talking to him a couple years later. This is pre-crash post, you know, the dot-com. Back in the day when you could say, hey, uh, you'd write a prospectus and you'd say, uh, we have a lot of customers. We lose money on every one of them, but we'll make it up on volume. Okay, where do I sign up and where do I invest? <laughs> Not that Counterpain had that, but their business model is really providing managed security service. Yeah, so one of the original, one of the original managed security service providers, right? So, yeah. and I ended up going at the time it was a Secure Computing Corporation. Uh, moved on to go work with a new startup. They kind of spun off that professional services division and it was called Gardent. And we were also a managed security service provider, but we're up in the Boston area. Yeah. In fact, I shared an office, one of the guys from the loft. <laughs> and, uh, but the difference was, is that our customer base were fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. And so when the market did this, unfortunately, uh, everything kind of went south uh, for Bruce. Brilliant business model, great guy, uh, really knows his stuff, uh, but the market is going to do what the market's going to do. Um, so hopefully you had a little bit better luck than some of our earlier folks back in the late 1990s. Yeah, so I ran their uh, global set of uh, security operations centers for a number of years. And then you got the opportunity to go work for VeriSign. Uh, they had uh, a small business unit that ran a commercial cyber intelligence shop, which is what I did in the service. Uh, it was called iDefense. And so uh, I got hired to go do that, which was a fabulous job. It never made any money because uh, it was a very niche uh, customer base, a lot of government contracts and things, right? But mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had a uh, we had a workforce that was deployed across the world, you know, basically collecting intelligence uh, that nobody else had, and everybody thought it was cool, and we just had a lot of fun. So we got to do that for a number of years, and um, mm -hmm. the the CEO at the time was Mark McLaughlin. Uh, at some point, he went off to be the CEO of Palo Alto Networks. Uh, they hired him to take that company public, and I went off to be a CISO for a government mm -hmm. contractor. And about a year later, Mark calls me and says, hey, we don't have a CSO. We need you to come do it for us. So that's how I got to work for Palo Alto Networks. Got to do a lot of interesting things. Uh, we created Unit 42, which is Palo Alto Networks yep. intelligence shop. They'll subscribe to them. Yeah, and um, and and uh, we started, help found the Cyber Threat Alliance, which was the first ISAO for cybersecurity vendors, uh -huh. uh, and they let me do my passion project, which uh, I get to plug right here. It's called the Cybersecurity Canon Project. Um, it's a kind of a um, rock and roll hall of fame for cybersecurity books. We have a bunch of practitioners, CISOs, lawyers, government people 
Uh, they read the books, write book reviews for the mm -hmm. official sponsor, which is Ohio State University. Uh, and they make the case that the book should either be a must read for everybody, a Hall of Fame book, or a good book that maybe not everybody has to read it. We call those niche books. Uh, but most mm -hmm. importantly, okay, the service we give back to the community is do not read because there's lots of crap cybersecurity books. And if you're going to spend time reading one this year, maybe not read a bad one. So go look it up on the Ohio State University. I'm going to presume this is one of the good ones. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, hasn't quite. Not just. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my career, my, my friend. Awesome. Well, hey. You know, so your book, Cybersecurity First Principles, a reboot of strategy and tactics, and we're going to do more than just a book review here, yeah. but we want to start out a little bit because what you're talking about is a concept of first principles. Yeah. Now, things like mathematics, of course, we have first principles. Anybody who ever took a course in geometry, you have some like undefined terms like a point and a line and a surface and a plane. And then after that, everything else builds. Uh, but you have to have something that you begin with. So these little atomic principles that we just begin with, what is what are they in cybersecurity? Um, how do we get started? What's really kind of the goal here? Well, it's kind of been my it's been sitting on the back of my neck for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that uh, most of us have been looking at what everybody was doing in cybersecurity and maybe taking the next step. But we never stopped long enough to uh, really think about if we were going in the right direction in the first place. And most of us, if you ask any three security practitioners, you know, what is their strategy? You're probably going to get three different answers because there is no accepted, here's what everybody should be doing. And they're all good ideas, okay? They're not like, they're oh, you should never do them. But uh, I don't think we've gotten to the essence of the problem. And like you said, uh, the idea of first principles has been around for, you know, since the beginning, right? You know, Aristotle and Descartes and, um, and, Lots of other scientists have solved some very big problems by reducing the essence of the thing down to the very beginning, right? And if you can figure that out, everything you do after that, all the things you're going to do to solve that problem um, kind of falls in like building blocks, right? And so uh, the first part of the book is me trying to figure out what that is. So let me tell you what it is, and then we can debate whether or not you think I nailed it or not, right? Here's what I think the absolute cybersecurity first principle is. And this is something I believe everybody should be doing, regardless of size, small, medium, large, regardless of vertical, finance, medical, whatever, uh, because it's an atomic first principle. So here it is. We need to reduce the probability of material impact due to a cyber event in the next, say, three years. Pick your time frame. That's the only wiggle room there. It could be one, three, five, whatever makes sense to your business. Right? But the point of it is it's time-bound. It's not a forever mm -hmm. problem. We're trying to solve a very specific problem. So what do you think about that? So reduce the probability of an adverse cyber Of a material, event. material cyber event yeah. in the next three years. So you hit on it exactly. There's three pieces to this. Mm -hmm. First, it's... Yeah, and yeah. SEC is bringing you up with a little bit uh, more rapid focus on materiality. And I had an episode a few weeks ago, living in a materiality <laughs> world, where I tried to get into defining that. I, but let's continue. Yeah, no, I wish, and I wish I could say I, I knew that was coming. So I wrote all this before the SEC uh, came up with their new rules this past summer. So I feel like I'm a genius all of a sudden. I, you know, I figured it was coming. Or well-hated <laughs> by people who have to fill out all of those eight Ks. Exactly right. <laughs> All right, so the first part is uh, reduce the probability, right? And what that means is, this is the hard part, we have to be able to calculate what that probability is. 
And this is something that we are not good at as cybersecurity professionals. So I've been trying mm-hmm. to figure it out in my entire career. Most of us uh, use something called the risk heat map, right, to mm-hmm. to convey risk to the business. And you know what this is. It's a, it's basically a grid. Yeah, x-axis is all the bad things. Y-axis is how bad they're going to be. And usually put them in a spreadsheet. And if you're good with spreadsheets, you can color code them. So the really bad stuff that is going to have the high impact is high into the right. We color code those red. The stuff in the mm-hmm. middle is yellow. And the stuff over on the left on the bottom, that's green. Those are the benign things. And so that's why we call it a heat map. And the problem with those things is that there are reams of scientific papers showing that that is a bad way to convey risk. Okay, it's, it's a, Maybe it's a good first step when you're trying to figure out what's going on. But if you're trying to convince the boss that there's a bad thing we have to fix, they're horrible at doing that. And there's a couple of reasons. One is, even if I tell you that uh, you know, risk one is highly probable to happen, it's going to have a high impact to us. What I think high means and what you think high means is totally arbitrary. Okay, And even if I tell you that high means, even in, the, in the presentation, even if I tell you that high means 90% chance of happening, you're still going to use your own personal bias. And it's been documented over, you know, uh, tens and twenties of papers over the years. So it's just bad. Mm -hmm. It's just bad science. The other thing it doesn't do is give the leadership any way to decide if uh, they can be tolerant of that risk. Okay. They have no way to say, well, I'm going to, it's a high risk. I get it, but I have a hundred other risks that are of equal height. They're equal probability. So uh, I'm just going to eat that one. We'll move on, right? And so it gives the leadership no chance to make those decisions. So I think we need a better way. And you, you know that there are there have been a number of books published uh, on how to think differently about this. Uh, we got the FAIR model by uh, Jack Jones and Jack Freund. Their book is in, by the way, the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. We got How to Measure Everything in Cybersecurity by Hubbard and Syerson. Their book is in this, uh, the Hall of Fame. Um, and, uh, and so people have been trying to figure this problem out forever. And I know those guys and uh, they're friends of mine. And I love those books. Those, their books changed my mind that it was possible to be better at this. But my criticism of those books, and I've talked to them about this personally, is that I kept expecting the chapter at the end that said, well, everybody, that was great theory, but here's how to do it in the real world. And those mm-hmm. chapters don't exist. I was talking to Jack and Jack uh, last year, they're writing the second edition of their book uh, for publication this year, and they're going to address that criticism uh, in the new edition, so I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I wrote that chapter because I needed a way to make it work for my job. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's the first part of reduce the probability. You have to be able to calculate what the probability is, and I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, it reminds me of the old geometry books where you get to this really tough problem and you're like, man, how they figured out? And it says proof is left to the Yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> in a way, the, the books kind of do that. And so it's interesting that as you look at that, it's about uh, doing that. In, and here at, at CISO Tradecraft, we align with your thinking in terms of the business because we kind of define cybersecurity as a business of revenue protection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. And understanding, managing, uh, mitigating uh, the risk for Critical data, whether it's disclosed, altered, denied, that's our confidentiality, integrity, and availability. What's interesting is that a lot of times when we sit for people and we think about how do we learn about cybersecurity, whether we're like you and I were sort of walk-ons back when 
Uh, it was just being formed. Or today when somebody says, hey, I want to get into a career like that, we tend to start them with things like the C, the I, and the A. Yeah. Confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And then people would probably say, oh, yeah, those are the core principles. But as you indicated, they're not the core principles. They might be definitions that are useful in understanding what those core principles are. Uh, but for example, and I mentioned this in just the episode I recorded uh, a couple of days ago, um, how confidential are you? <laughs> how do you measure How do you that? measure it? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I mean, you either are or you're not. You've had a breach or you haven't. It's almost like, are you, how pregnant are you? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm 40, no, you either are or you are not. There's sort of a, uh, it's a binary function. And so confidentiality then is very hard to measure because a lot of times you don't know if you had a breach until, well, you've been told you had a breach. Then all of a sudden you realize, oh yeah, we had not been confidential until such a point. And so if you focus upon then a timeline and saying, we're going to go ahead and reduce the impact of material breaches over some timeline, that's a lot more focusable and we can look at that. And so that kind of brings up a question of materiality and then the heat map. So let's combine those two together and say, all right, if something is down in the bottom right corner and it's looking as a green and uh, do we say just live with it? Because reality is the impact isn't that great. Uh, the likelihood isn't all that high. And quite honestly, there's more, you know, there are bigger fish to fry, so to speak. So we end up prioritizing. But where is that materiality line? That's, I think, going to be Companies are going to be struggling with that, uh, although some people would argue they've already figured that out. But the SEC ruling that came out of, and then the new requirements for reporting as of December 2023 of uh, reporting within four days your initial impression of the materiality breach. We've seen some things come out. Uh, we've seen stuff from different companies, uh, including Microsoft, who've said, hey, something happened, and we believe that this may be material, et cetera. If we're not going to decompose C and I and A, let's decompose of a little bit materiality. Sure. How would you define materiality? Well, I, I agree with you that there's going to be some very large gray area over the next five mm -hmm. to 10 years as all of us figure out what the SEC means when what is material. Right. Right. And you're right to mention that um, because of their the new rules going to affect this past December, that more and more companies are going to report it when maybe they wouldn't have before because- it's not that they understand what materiality is any better, but now we're we're being conservative here. We're making sure that we don't get hit with a lawsuit, which we no, none of us wants. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, and by the way, there's two things we have to think about here in terms of materiality. There's what is material for a public company, because that's where the SEC mm -hmm. rules come from. But for everybody else, there's no obligation to report. Okay, there's nothing like that. But material is still the basis of risk to the business. And so you still have to figure out what material means for you. Um, and so let's take public companies for a second, right? What does that mean? Uh, first, I don't think the CISO has a say in that. I mean, we have an opinion probably, but, you know, the senior mm -hmm. leaders of the company, this would be, you know, the chief finance officer and the chief risk officer and, you know, mm -hmm. the CEO, all those folks uh, understand what is material to the public company. And we can put, you know, people like us can provide input to that equation. But once they define what that is for them, and it can be different for every organization because it's, it depends mm -hmm. on size and vertical and culture and all of those things. But once the leadership team decides what that is, then people like us can calculate the risk of it happening and what the potential dollar loss might be 
if it does happen, right? And then then we can get into some decisions about whether or not we want to actively mitigate the risk or like you say, okay, just eat it and uh, move on to the next one because it's not that big of a deal to us. So excellent point. So it tells me that if I'm a CISO or director or somebody in that position, that if I don't have a well-defined sense from my yeah. executive team, legal team, whomever, about what materiality is, I need to start pushing back now. Not to push back so much, but to be able to say, hey, yeah. I need to know what the threshold is. You have not, not to any neglect, not to any negligence, but you haven't really told me what it is. And it's one of those things where, unlike, I, I forget what the judge was who, when was asked to define pornography, was, I can't define it, but I know well, I, I see it. See it. You know, what is materiality? I don't know where we are. I don't I can't define it, but we know it when we see it. Uh, we need to count and define it. And so that, as you had indicated, is outside the scope of the CISO, because typically, although uh, the, the C and the CISO is, we think of that as chief, uh, but sometimes... Uh, it's going to be a commentary. And then the S is in security. Sometimes it's the scapegoat. Yeah. And we find out that uh, you know, we get, we're we not at the grown-ups table, so to speak, when these things are defined. Yeah. So I think one of the first actionable items that we can take out of this conversation is if you do not have a solid determination of what materiality is in your organization, you need to push for that. Yeah, and I, also it's another hit against the heat map as a way to convey risk, right? Because mostly we put very tactical things on the heat map. You know, th yeah. this isn't about strategy. It's about, here's a really bad thing that could possibly happen to us. Let's just say ransomware, right? Mm -hmm. And But there's no, there is no uh, calculation about what is the potential materiality of some kind of an attack like that, right? And mm -hmm. so unless we can convey that to the leaders, there's a big gap between what the security team is doing and what the business is doing. And I believe that's the reason uh, we are still buried in the hierarchy in most cases, okay, that we haven't figured out how to talk to the business side. And, and that's a very good point because it reminds me of some of the like the old science fiction books where, you know, long-lived aliens come in there and they start taking and said, well, we're going to learn human language because, well, you humans don't live long enough yeah. to make it worthwhile for you to learn our language. Uh, and so to a certain extent, the language of business, mostly risk uh, and financial and et cetera, is not what we grow up with typically in the cybersecurity world. Now, granted, some of us come from a technical track, some of us come from a leadership management track. But over here, we can't expect the executive suite to spend the time to learn our lingo, so to speak. And if you find yourself speaking in acronyms or talking about details, it doesn't work. You get on the, uh, yeah, we, I tell people you should always have your elevator pitch ready in case you happen to get in the same elevator with the CEO. Yeah. And they'll say like, hey, uh, hey, G. Mark, what's going on in security? And your response should not be something like, oh, we just had an IP alert that came in there on the firewall. It turned out that the DNS didn't go correlate there. And it was a .cm, but it turned out that we'd went to error.net and it didn't correlate that. And then all of a sudden, we figured out that the misformed protocol happened to come through area. And we thought it would be TCP on port 53, but it really wasn't DNS. It was tunneled in there. And he's going to like, security, get these weirdos off my executive elevator. No wonder they've put us all underneath the CIO, all right? So I don't want to talk to that guy. <laughs> like, right? You don't deal with them and things like that. <laughs> and so anyway, yeah, I got my assistant here wants to participate. All right, excellent. So if we, if we um, go ahead and we take a look at that, though, and, and we say to CISOs or you know, people that are aspiring to be so, you get in the elevator and then the CEO walks in and she says, um, what's going on in security? You might have a better business-oriented risk to say, even just in the same situation, uh, we've detected 
a lot of attacks see that seem to be coming from a nation state that are going after our intellectual property. And as you know, the value of our business is based primarily on the intellectual property that we can manufacture. And if it gets compromised, that could affect our stock price, it could affect our market share, and it could really damage us. Now, that's a totally different answer for the same thing. And so what's going to happen then is that CEO says, look, I got a board meeting right now. You're coming with me. And they drag you in. I said, okay, tell them what you told me. Uh, well, we're getting a lot of attacks that are coming from a nation state that are going after intellectual property, could affect our stock pricing. Like this. Oh my goodness, what should we do? And you're like, I don't know. I didn't, I never thought I'd get this far. <laughs> I mean, you should always have in your back of your pocket, like Zig Ziglar said, have a contract and your closing line ought to be pressed hard. You're making three copies. Um, so well, I would even have, I would even take it up one more notch, right? Because okay. um, uh, it's by experience. You get to talk to a lot of CISOs out there. I get to talk to a lot of them, right? Most of us don't can't articulate what we're trying to do for the company right like mm -hmm. what is the strategy we're very good at what you said we can identify all these really scary things that could go wrong but if i got in an elevator with the ceo and uh, and she asked me what we, how we're doing i i my approach my elevator pitch would be something like this as you know our strategy for security for the company is resilience right we started that pro that project a year ago, and since then, we've added X, Y, and Z to our capabilities, and because of that, we have reduced the probability of material impact by two points, and we expect to drop in another five points because we're doing Project Z uh, next year. That's my elevator pitch, right? It's about strategy, and it's about how it affects the business, and that's where I would like to point most senior security professionals. And, and so as a result, it's it's a very useful skill. I did my MBA, as I mentioned, back in the 90s. And what I tell people is is that, um, yeah, then when I said, I've gone on, I've done this and done this and that. And they said, well, why did you really need that? I mean, you already know all these things. Well, to a certain extent, what I found this, my business degree made me fluent in the language of business mm -hmm. as compared to the language of technology or the language of the military or anything else like that. That in and of itself has been tremendously valuable over time because now, by being fluent in that language of business, you can speak to a different set of people and your inputs are much more valuable at that point. And therefore you've increased your value. And, and I'm trying to tell people when you're doing mentoring and things like that is that if you take a look at your career path, there's an inflection point that you can hit. Some of it hit, hit us, some of us don't, but all of a sudden you realize the slope of that line changes. Yeah. And the biggest change that I see that'll help people in their careers on that uh, line slope is going to be mastering the art of understanding business, then translating business imperatives into your actions, and then being able to translate the other way by being able to say, these are the technical elements. I'm going to explain them in common business terms, and then that's going to work well. Exactly right. Okay, And, uh, and uh, as you've said, uh, most of us don't do it that way, and we are struggling uh, figuring out how to do that. All right. So I had that in mind when we were writing mm -hmm. this book. And, and it worked pretty well. Now, there was part of interesting in the book, something you'd mentioned about, about Enrico Fermi, his estimates, use of Bayes rules and things like that. So we're really going to go away from the business into some little technical stuff. Uh, but what are your thoughts on that? And uh, what, were you, what were you thinking that way? Well, I, uh, I had a big epiphany this last year. Um, another uh, cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book admitted last year was something called Super Forecasting by Dr. Tedlock. I don't know if you've read it, but... Yeah, he Tedlock is this uh, scientist, government scientist, or he used to be, 
Um, and, you know, he's this old curmudgeon who, uh, you know, would watch the local news programs and shake his fist at the screen because, you know, they brought a pundit on who got something right once in his career, but had been wrong ever since, right? And he says, why would you listen to this guy? And I always thought that there should be like a Chiron running at the bottom of the screen and says, this guy's one for 33, maybe not pay attention to what he's talking about, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, Tedlock is working for, for IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Pro- Projects Agency, kind of like DARPA, but for the intelligence right. community. And he does this experiment uh, with three uh, test groups, right? One is the, uh, the intelligence community, the second is the academic community, and the third is a group that I called geezers on the go. These are just kind of folks who have uh, time to solve puzzles. And he gave them re- 500 really hard forecasting problems, like will the president of Syria be assassinated in the next year, right? And then he graded them over time, and the group that wins this contest is the geezers on the go by 60%. They beat the intelligence community who had access to classified information. But the interesting thing was that there's a subgroup inside the geezers who beat the entire group by another 60%, and those are other super forecasters in the title. And these guys Mm -hmm. weren't very special. They're smart for sure, but they weren't doing high-order math. They were just curious and, uh, and applied some very specific principles. And one of them was Fermi uh, estimates. Fermi, our favorite physics uh, physics guy, you know, from uh, the movie that just came out, Oppenheimer, he makes a cameo in there. And he, he was famous worldwide for uh, solving problems by just sort of guesstimating smart guesses about what the answer mm-hmm. might be to get it into the ballpark so they can move on and figure out other things. And then later, sometimes 20 years later, they would come up with the math to prove that, man, he was pretty close with that guesstimate. And, you know, later on when he was teaching uh, physics to college students, he was famous for giving them questions like, how many inches of pizza are eating on campus on Friday nights? And you're not allowed to look anything up. You're just supposed to estimate it. And he said that guesstimating like that was a key skill set for physicists. And I'm saying it's a key skill set for CISOs, right? We need to be able to get it into the ballpark. And Here's the epiphany I had. Okay, uh, we, I was giving my uh, risk presentation to my CEO two years ago, and uh, we did a basic all over the world and said, okay, here's where we think we are. But my purpose of the presentation was to convince him to give me a year of resources to really get into the details and really refine that number. And here's the question he asked me. He goes, what's the difference going to be? When you guys go through all that, spend all that money and, and spend all my time because I got to be involved in this, uh, mm-hmm. what is the difference in the risk calculation? And I had to admit, you know, in the worst case, maybe it might be off by five points. And he says, you know, Rick, I don't need it to make a decision about resources for improving our cybersecurity landscape. I can make that decision now. And it was like, it was like this big idea just popped in my head. I don't need precision when I'm calculating risk. I need ballpark numbers, good enough answers so that we can decide that we're going to spend some money or eat the risk, right? And that's kind of what I learned by writing the book. Well, it's interesting because I know I remember you know reading Doug Hofstetter's book, and one of the things he had in one of the chapters was, okay, give it your best estimates. And some of these things I'm looking at to say, um, come on, really? Uh, why would somebody happen to know the length of a coastline in a particular country mm-hmm. or where, which has a longer border or anyone in a lot of these other things? 
But it was kind of interesting because a couple of things that go in there. Number one, as you indicated, there's sort of a rule of thumb. Yeah. And the old users on the go, we've seen more data. And even if we haven't empirically classified it and things like that, experience counts. And we like to say that old age and treachery will overcome youth and exuberance. <laughs> and to a certain extent, uh, there is a value in having somebody who's been around the block a couple of times. Uh, and so a lot of times people think, oh, you get past 50 and then they're going to, you know, you have a hard time getting a job or whatever and good luck with that. And, and my thought is, you know, now that, you know, of course it always looks a little bit better on the other side, uh, well on the other side, but no, you, you gain something there. And the thing that you gained is a new perspective, the perspective that allows you to put into context the short term, the tactical into a viewpoint, which is more of a strategic. And as a result, you see implications more likely uh, than other people who don't have that background or that perspective. And, and that's incredibly helpful in my opinion. Well, I was gonna say the, so they use firm, the super forecasters use uh, Fermi right. estimates as one Fermi. of the things. Uh, the underlying math behind it all is Bayes' algorithm, and it isn't like they okay. it isn't like they threw in into a formula and calculated it. It's not that. It's just the way that Bayes works is perfect way for calculating risk. And you know how this works, but at, at a high level, Bayes is essentially take an initial guess about what the answer is, mm -hmm. collect more information about it, reassess what that estimate is up or down based on the new information. And iterate on that over and over and over again. And the more you iterate, the closer you get to a real answer. You're never going to get to the answer, but it's going to be close enough, like I said, to make decisions with, right? So Bayes is the underlying math, and mm -hmm. Fermi estimates is a way to get to some numbers that you may not have at your disposal. And when I describe this to people, the pushback I get is they get that very skeptical Spock eyebrow going up and said, this all sounds like funny magic math, Rick, why are you pushing all this? And my, my uh, answer to that is, uh, is that some really smart people have used these techniques to solve some of the most complex problems in the world. And my favorite example of that is Alan Turing used Bayes' algorithm to break Enigma, right? And he had two different systems to do it. And so if he can figure out how to, you know, win World War II with Bayes' algorithm, I'm pretty sure that CISOs can use that that way to you know calculate risk for their business. Yeah, and of course, one of the trivia questions I like to ask is whose team first broke the Enigma? Who uh, the the Polish people did, right? The Marian Rzeszki. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The <laughs> Polish cryptographers. And if you get to, to Bletchley Park, there is a monument to the Polish cryptographer. They had they had to get out of Dodge, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> uh, because of, of what was coming in. And so what we find then is that that iterative analysis is helpful because sometimes we don't get enough data. So here's, here's exactly. an interesting question. You have a baseball player who comes up in the last game of the season. It's an at-bat and gets on base. They're one for one. The pitcher. All right. And that's the only time that person's been at bat. On paper, they have a 1,000 batting average. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. What, is that off, what is that player's batting average? Uh, it's so interesting you say that, right? Because uh, I want to. There's a whole idea of um, how we build our teams using mm -hmm. uh, Moneyball as the example, right? Uh, so we we'll, we'll come back to that, right? But um, uh, yeah, his batting average for that game is 1,000. You're absolutely right. But we can make some guesses, all right, yes. based on how well that person has done for uh, his entire career, right? And uh, up through, you know, high school, college, all the way up and say, you know, 
He's really been one for a million, all right? So uh, it looks like this was an anomaly that he got a hit today. I'm pretty sure we can make that guess uh, about that uh, batter's performance. But if you had no other data other than the fact you've got a pitcher, Ex- he's made it to the major leagues, he's in the last game of the season, he gets one at bat, and he's on base. Can we then, with just that limited set of inputs, knowing that on paper that day he's batting a 1,000, What's the most likely batting yeah. average that's a, of that individual? That's perfect. And now, that's a perfect Fermi guess, right? Because we can assume, because yeah. based on all the other pitchers that we know about. I'm going to say, yeah, about like 189 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Because pitchers tend not to be sluggers. Yeah. Sometimes they do hit. Sometimes they hit well. You get a Babe Ruth in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, the fact that you just were in the majors gets you to a certain level right there. That's one piece of data. Uh, that they are actually a pitcher is another piece of data. And then you can pull from all that other data sets to infer what's the most likely answer. So that's a really interesting question, right? Because then, okay, so the, the one set of data that we have is the pitcher is batting 1,000, okay? But we know from mm-hmm. experience that pitchers normally hit 150, let's say, okay? Okay. The question I have for you then is how far are you going to reduce that one individual's batting average based on those assumptions that we make? Because you're probably not going to reduce it all the way down to the bottom, because he got a hit, all right? So it's going to be a little bit bigger than the, what we think it is for a normal picture. So that's kind of... So you sign the contract for him for next yeah. year and how much you can put in it, and all of a sudden yeah. you end up having to have all of these non-empirical data that you have to infer because of the fact that it's just not presented. Now let's let's pull that over into cybersecurity a little mm-hmm. bit. So you have an environment, you come in as a CISO, you say, hey, I got a new job. Um, okay, great. Welcome, day one. Here you go plunk you down. And of course, we want to go ahead and figure out our first 90 days and all the other things that we've recommended that people do at the beginning. But you make an assessment and you find out that uh, as best as you can tell, there have been no material cyber breaches at this organization in the last two years. Day one, what's the likelihood that you're going to suffer a material cyber breach in the next three years to go ahead with your first principles based upon the fact that all you have is the fact that the team you had there was batting a thousand for the last two years. They didn't have a material breach. Well, here's what, can a, we extend here's what a super forecaster would do, right? They talk mm-hmm. about outside in calculations and inside out calculations and outside in is something that most of us never even think about, right? Here's the question you should be asking going into your new job here. What's the probability that any company like the one I'm working at will get hit with a material event in the next three years? And it turns out there's lots of data about that. Lots. Right. And so you can make an assumption, okay, that we're just like everybody else. So our first estimate in our Bayes algorithm approach is going to be what every other company uh, has experienced. Right. Let's say uh, it's a big financial. And uh, so. The typical company is, has a 30% chance to get hit by some material event in the next three years. That is the first estimate. In Bayes terminology, it's the first prior. So the second thing you're going to do now is the inside-out analysis. Now we're going to look at how we've actually deployed controls that pursue our first principle strategy, whatever it is. It could be a combination of things. It could be something along the lines of zero trust or intrusion kill chain prevention or automation or a a number of things that you think is the strategy for the company. And then you evaluate how good you are at deploying that strategy. And then you can adjust your estimate from the outside in, up or down based on that evaluation. And that would be the estimate I would bring 
to my senior leaders in the first 90 days. So start thinking baseball. Yeah. Because in a way, that, that problem that I presented to you uh, gives you a good thought problem in that you're thinking about, given a limited set of data, your first answer is, well, I'll just take the information, batting 1,000. The second one that you said is, well, okay, I just reduce to the mean and we'll take this guy down to 150. But he didn't have a hit. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you kind of skew a little bit in that direction. So what we are is we're informed by a large repository of information that goes beyond just the simple data in front of us. And we go back to those uh, good old geezers there who have that experience base. And that's why it's valuable to be able to extend your inputs beyond what's right in front of you. And, you know, the pushback I get back on this idea when I do get pushback is um, most of us, most security professionals, when we say we're trying to calculate probability, we immediately think that we need high in math and precision. We need dot nine 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 precision in order to calculate probability. And what I've realized is that is not what we need at all. Okay, we just need, like I said, a ballpark number so that we can go to our boss and say, you know, boss, there's like a 20% chance we're going to get hit in the next three years. Do you want to do something about that? And that can get us moving and convince him or her to give us some resources to do whatever we need to do. Right. And then risk tolerance and risk appetite mm -hmm. is often personal. And it will reflect an organization. So an Elon Musk-led organization is probably going to be willing to try sure. more things than a traditional financial institution that's been around for 100 years that is subject to a lot of regulation. And if you will, the creativity has been regulated out of you. And, and so what we want to think about then is that for an individual that's looking at an organization or maybe getting a job or you're going out of the military or you're, you're transferring, something that's not often put on the list of things to look for. And people say, well, what's going to be my commute? Can I work from home? You know, do I get paid? What are the benefits, et cetera? But how about the culture? What about the culture exactly right. fit? And we're speaking not so much the culture of whether people have dressed on Fridays or not, but the risk appetite. Because if you're highly risk averse and you're in an organization that says, yeah, let's go for it, then that's a tough fit. And it's even worse the other way around when you're willing to just go ahead and, and wing it and then not tell the management. I re recall one time many years ago, it's you know, a long time has passed, as a Navy midshipman, so out at sea on a ship. And one of the things you had to do is you had your little book of the qualification mm -hmm. standards, the Peak West book. And we had to go down, down the engineering department, and we were down there while we were alongside another ship doing underway replenishment. Well, that's a big deal. You have to have very, very precise control of the helm. And also, if you needed to do, you need to be able to kick the, uh, the engines in if we had to you know, pull away or whatever. So the chief engineer, who was one of these yeah, what the heck? You guys just sit down and drink coffee, and then I'll tell stories, and then I'll just sign a whole bunch of lines in your book. But while we're alongside, without informing the captain at the bridge, he took one of the boilers offline to do a little bit of maintenance. And it's like, now this is the old steam-powered chips, but they're thinking, like, if the captain needs power, it's not going to be there. And he's like, yeah, then we never needed it. It went alongside. And it's like, well, do they know up there the risks that you're taking? And so in the cyber world, we find out that it's also been taken place, also in financial, like Nick Leeson, you know, the rogue trader who went ahead and, and took down Bering's bank. And then we take a look at Jérôme Caviel, and he's gone ahead and take a Societe Générale and, you know, with $7 billion worth of bad bets. And one of the things I think we want to be careful of is that as cybersecurity professionals, as leaders, that we do not incur unnecessary risk that is above, to use the military term, our pay grade. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, that is to say that we, we stay within that. Now, I mentioned military and pay grade. And we're getting close to the end of the show, but I did want to point out the one thing I think that we probably have in common in our experience. Do you remember what that is or have you recounted that? Just know that we're both in the service. So is that what you're talking about? Well, um, we were both at a very specific place on 9-11. Uh, I was the on-scene commander at the World Trade Center because I was literally starting my first job, uh, day on the job at Ernst Young in the reserve. On that day? Then, you were, that was your day one? On that day, my first day, 8 a.m., I showed up for work for new employee orientation, and 46 minutes later, the world changed. Wow. And so what? It, and I mentioned that in one of my talks. If you actually go to YouTube and type in G. Mark Hardy, you'll find Lessons Learned from Ground Zero. I put that out on YouTube on September 11, 2011, 10 years afterward, because it was a recording I did for the leadership school that was going to end up dying in some government vault. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't classified, but it was just sort of an insight. But I had listened to your account at the Pentagon. And for those who have not heard it, I would recommend listen to a CSO's 9-11 story on the CSO perspective uh, that tells you about what Rick did. Uh, we won't carry that through this show, but I just wanted to mention that because we do have that in common. And I thank you for your service and for your heroic efforts to go back in again and again to try to see what you could do. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And that's exactly the reason we did it, because uh, my report was probably going to be buried in some Pentagon file somewhere. And so I wanted to at least get out what happened uh, from what I knew and tell. And also tell the story about all the great people that, you know, just stood up that day. All right. Just, oh, yeah. you know, so a really, really um, impactful day for all of us. I know for you, for sure. Um, and so thank you for saying that. Uh, we had a lot of fun putting that together. Well, good. Hey, any last thoughts before we wrap up our show? I would just say that for the book, we spent a lot of time talking about probability, right? But really the idea mm -hmm. is what is the absolute first principle for cybersecurity? And be once you figure out what that is for you, and I, I make the case for, for what I say it is, all right? But there's follow-on strategies that happen after that. And I'm, this is not mm -hmm. a checklist, right? Every one of these strategies has pros and cons, and it depends on how big you are, how what kind of vertical you're in, all that, and which ones you decide. But the point is, is they logically flow from the absolute first principle. And once you can figure that out, then you can explain what the hell you're doing with your InfoSec mm -hmm. program. So that would be my big last thought about the book. Well, that's a very good point. And I'll put a link in our show notes to the book. So if you want to go to Amazon and acquire it or on Audible or something like that, you can just click on that and that'll be available to you. Uh, but for audience, thank you for listening in. Uh, this has been my guest, Rick Howard, who has given us some fascinating insight in terms of the concept of first principle, cybersecurity, risk, measuring things, uh, and even a little bit of baseball. In there. <laughs> um, uh, for those who are interested, you can, again, if I mentioned before, subscribe to our show if you'd like or listen to Rick. He's got his own podcast. He has some excellent material as well. And I'm going to have to look up your uh, Hall of Fame, as you yeah. call it. What was the name for the book? The Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. Yep. Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. Got it. So that's another homework assignment for everybody else. In the meantime, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy. Thank you for being a part of CISO Tradecraft. Uh, we look forward to helping you with your journey and your career. And until next time, stay safe out there.